I have been asked to do something that is quite unusual for me, to talk something about, about heart cry, about God's grace and gracious activity through, through that ministry. And um, it's a fearful thing to do, because even when you attempt to communicate something clearly, we have this disposition, it seems, within us to exalt men. Even after all that is said in Scripture, even after all that is written in church history and secular history, we still have this thought that somehow it has something to do with the greatness or the piety or the faith of a man. And I can assure you that's rubbish. I have searched my life in Scripture and I have searched my life in prayer. I have tried to contemplate why, if I have been used over all these now nearly 40, nearly four decades, is that I am the smallest and weakest, most pitiful, most afraid man that God could find. This is not false piety. This is what I know about me. If you were to come to my home, I don't think you would see hypocrisy But you would be disturbed at how just simply normal. You would walk away saying nothing exceptional here. Nothing. I suppose a team of scientists and psychologists and sociologists could all get together and theologians and study my life and they would find nothing exceptional except the grace of God. If, if you look in the Scriptures, in Judges chapter 6, Israel is oppressed by the Midianites It was a terrible, violent, perverted, wicked oppression. And God is going to deliver his people. And so, in verse 11, Gideon is visited. Then the angel of the Lord came and sat under the oak that was in Ophrah, which belonged to Joash, the Bezerite, as his son Gideon was beating out wheat in the winepress in order to save it from the Midianites. He's hiding. He's hiding. If you look down in verse 15, he said to him, O Lord, how shall I deliver Israel? Behold, my family is the least in Manasseh, and I am the youngest in my father's house. Isn't it amazing that when God wants to do something in Scripture, 
One of the greatest joys and comforts that I think is mine and that belongs to God's people is that He always chooses the runt of the litter. And if He does not start out the runt of the litter, God will so work in His life, so break Him and crush Him and grind Him that He will become the runt of the litter. There was a song that Keith Green, who was a a great blessing to me, his songs in my young years, that he used to sing. And I would sing it to my sons when they were little. Oh Lord, I am weak and I'm trembling. For the Lord I am always remembering. Oh, what a strong shepherd holds you in his arms. He will break you and make you his own. God comes to Gideon. The angel of the Lord appears to him in verse 12 and said, The Lord is with you, O valiant warrior. How can he be called a valiant warrior? He's hiding in a wine vat. He's hiding from the enemy. What could make him a valiant warrior? And immediately we would think it would be the transformation of his character. That God would somehow touch him and he would become powerful like Samson. That's not what happens. Again, it's our desire to exalt men. That's not what happens. What makes him a valiant warrior? Verse 16, but the Lord said to him, surely I will be with you. If you go over and follow out the story in verse 7, in chapter 7 of verse 1, then Zerubbabel, that is Gideon, and all the people who were with him arose early and camped beside the spring of Herod. And the camp of Midian was on the north side of them by the hill of Moreth in the valley. And the Lord said to Gideon, the people who are with you are too many for me to give Midian into their hands. The more, and if you're a young minister, write this down. The more you have determined to trust in the arm of the flesh, the less you will see the power of God. Your problem has never been that you're too weak. Your problem is you do not know how weak you are. This world and the heart of man is like Jericho. It is tightly shut up and no one comes out and no one goes in. We have been called to do something that is absolutely impossible for the angelic community cannot do what we have been called to do. What we have been called to do, only God can do. And that's what you must understand. This is not about you growing in strength. It's about you being with Him. Men talk about revival. Men read books about revival. Men preach about revival. Much of it's nonsense. You're just alone with Him. You live with Him. And you live with Him not because you're pious. You live with Him, close to Him, not because you love Him more than others. You live with Him because you've seen something. 
You've seen your own weakness. Not only can you not preach, not only can you not do mission activity, you can't breathe apart from the power of God. If He were to distance Himself from you, Satan would devour you in a moment's time. It's all about being with Him, staying with Him, walking with Him. And that's a big part of sanctification. When my boys were young, when they were little, I would take them into what we would call the the bottomlands to hunt. They'd be only five, six years old. And they never want to stay with you. They never want to stay with you. They just want to go ahead, go ahead, walk ahead, wander. So what you have to do is when it starts getting dark, you let them wander. You follow them. You make sure you don't lose sight of them. And you hide from cypress tree to cypress tree. Until all of a sudden they hear an animal rustle or some call of a crane. And they're terrified. And they look around and say, Dad, Dad, and you do not appear. You leave them. You leave them until they're afraid. You leave them until they tremble. You leave them until they cry out. And then you step out behind from behind the, lo- the cypress. And they learn their lesson. The problem will never be that you're not strong enough. You're not smart enough. You're not eloquent enough. Your problem will never be that you can't join the circle of the scholar. Your problem is that you don't recognize how weak you are. And yet some who recognize their weakness, it causes them to run away from God in shame when they should run to Him. They run to Him. This army was too large. As God gives me greater and greater things to do in my life, it is always, Paul, you're too large. I've got to cut you down again. And cut you down again. And cut you down again. And cut you down again. Jowett wrote a book many, many years ago, The School of Calvary, to the degree that a man is used of God, God will press him. God will break him. God will make him anew. He says, the people who are with you are too many for me to give Midian into your hands, for Israel would become boastful, saying, my own power has delivered me. My own power. Isn't that our tendency? We've done it. I can't tell you how many times I've had people actually walk up to me and do this. Why are you even... I mean, you're not even that great of a preacher. (laughs) Yeah, you're right. You're right. But it's not words. It's not just words. Words. Really? Words. 
It's the power of the Holy Spirit. It's the Holy Spirit that's because there's so much heretical teaching on the Holy Spirit. Some of you who are more orthodox run from the Spirit as though He were the plague. Or now that we seem to have an increase in theological desire among the people of God, now we're all so intelligent. Really? You can never be intelligent enough to even win one soul. It's the power of the Spirit. When the Word of God is is preached forth plainly, without any dressing, the more you dress it, the less impotent, because it's mixed with you. Everything, everything, for us in life and ministry is about the Word of God and the power of the Holy Spirit. This is the gift that Christ gave His bride, Himself and the Father in the Spirit to us. He said, you're too big. You'll say that my own power delivered me. And then, as you know, it ends up in verse 8 of chapter 7. So the 300 men took the people's provisions and their trumpets into their hands. And Gideon sent them, sent all the other men of Israel, each to his tent, but retained 300 men. And then how did he arm them? Chapter 6, verse 16 of chapter 7 He divided the 300 men into three companies and he put trumpets and empty pitchers into their hands of all of them with torches inside the pitchers. God will, God delights to honor even the smallest trust, the smallest reliance of his servants. And we can trust Him. We can trust Him. But it's... I, I don't even know how to say it. It's being with Him. It's not just studying. It's not just exegeting. It's not just what is the original meaning of the text in the Greek or the Hebrew. It is being with Him. It is enjoying Him. It is drawing upon Him. And then it is recognizing also that, and and I may be departing for a moment in this, but when I look at the New Covenant, there seems to me to be two, outside of, of justification, there seems to be two great and primary promises. One is, in Jeremiah, they will all know me. From the greatest to the least, and the least and the greatest, they'll all know me. That is not just a promise. That is the new covenant promise. That's a promise of promises. And then along with it is what Joel tells us. Another expression of the new covenant. That the Holy Spirit would be poured out. You know, it's really funny when I get around guys like you. 
And they preach on the day of Pentecost, chapter 2. They always preach on what it doesn't mean. They never preach on what it does mean. And do you know what it does mean? That you and I, the moment we're converted, we receive the Holy Spirit, but we should spend our life crying out, crying out for greater and greater manifestations of His life and His power in us. Not getting riled up in a pulpit purely by emotion, but the Spirit of God almost tears your chest apart. Knowing Him, Him living in us. We should constantly, constantly, constantly be studying the Word of God and renewing our mind in the Word of God. There is no limits to what we can know about God in the new covenant. You must understand that. They shall all know me. If there's something you need to know, go to the Scriptures, go to the Scriptures, go to the Scriptures, go to the Scriptures. You can grow, 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 grow. There's no limit to your growth in the knowledge of God in Christ. If you have the Scriptures in front of you and you're willing to study them. Yet at the same time, there is no limitation to the power of the Holy Spirit in a man or woman. And I'm not talking about all these silly things. I'm talking about life and power. And you need to know that. How many times did Spurgeon say that we're so rich and we live like beggars? We live like beggars in the knowledge of God. We live like beggars in the power of the Holy Spirit and neither one of those things is necessary. And the last thing I want you to do is run out of here all emotional like some wind-up tin soldier so that three days later you wind down again and you're more bitter than when you came here. But you need to believe. I know that sounds so trite. You need to believe that there is no limit to how you can know Him in the Scriptures and in experience. In experience. And I will not allow anyone to take that away from me. Just because it's abused in so many camps, I will not allow a heretical camp to steal my inheritance. You can know Him. He can become more real to you than the mass of people sitting before you. You can know Him. And His life. And His power. Yes, studying Scripture. All by all means, study Scripture. Study Scripture. Study Scripture 10,000 times more than you study Scripture. But there's more. Pray. Pray. Pray for what? What is the only thing you really need? A clear vision of Him. I hear prayer meetings all the time and they're all about so many things but they don't seem to ever get with what we really need. In my years on the mission field, In my years now of working with missionaries, I have met some of the most, I have met people, extraordinary individuals who have paid an extraordinary cost. And you look at that 
And you ask yourself, how do they do that? How do they do that? You see people throughout church history that seem to have an extraordinary love and passion for God. And you go, how do they do that? How do they do that? Well, let's look at it theologically. They were born in the same radical depravity as you. They were born again by the same spirit as you. What makes them different? We think it's something in them, don't we? They're special. They're special. Let me try to pull out of the air an illustration. You find a man, and that man, that man loves his wife like no man you have ever seen. That man loves his wife, serves his wife, blesses his wife, pampers his wife, leads his wife. I mean, it is an extraordinary love, one for the poets. What do you think immediately when you see some man like that? You think he's a wonderful man. You think he's a great man. You think he is an above normal man, don't you? What an amazing man. Maybe he's not amazing at all. Maybe he's normal. Maybe he's subnormal, but he has an amazing wife. And that wife of his, her virtue draws out of this dull-hearted man an extraordinary affection. So now it's not about the man at all, is it? It's about his wife. When you see a Christian that is passionate, that is devoted, that is willing to go to the gallows, that is willing to suffer hell itself in the middle of some jungle in Asia, and you ask, how? What's in them that's not in me? That's not the question. What has he seen of God that you have not seen? And Edwards backs me up on this. That it is the transcendence, the beauty, the glory, the kindness, the love, the virtues, the excellencies of God that draw out our affections. And the more we see those excellencies, the more we see them, the more our hearts are kindled. Have you ever come out, I used to live in a log cabin out in the mountains and, and come out sometimes and see an amazing sunset. I would go in and, or sunrise and I'd go back in, wake up my wife and I said, that sunrise was incredible. I mean, it, it took my breath away. What was I saying? What was I saying? It was so beautiful it almost killed me. You can know the beauty of God in Christ in the Scriptures. And in prayer to such a degree that you have to say, take your hand off me, lest I die. Your joy killeth me. You see, one glimpse of his beauty, as his beauty is, would fracture your psyche in a million pieces. That's why prophets are such strange men. They're all speaking apocalyptically. Because they've seen something that they cannot describe. They've seen something that they cannot understand. And that is the burden of true preaching. That is the pain of preaching. If you want to know what true 
pain of preaching is about is that you have seen someone so beautiful that you cannot comprehend his beauty and you cannot speak it forth no matter how hard you try. You want to grab people by the ears. You want to pull them close. You want to hug them. You want to say, look at this. But the words that come out of your mouth are pathetic and you go home angry. That's the pain of preaching. That's the pain of preaching. You'll need revival. You need to see Him. Just more and more of Him. And you don't need to rush out and, and fast for 10 days, unless that's what the Lord wants you to do. But you need to say to yourself, you need to believe, he's more beautiful than I thought. If that man would act in such a way, so extreme in front of all of us, maybe Christ is more beautiful than I thought. I'll seek him. I'll seek him, not radically, I hate that word. I will seek him by the normal means of grace. I will seek Him in His Word. If He is this beautiful, I'll look for Him. I will seek for Him in expository preaching as the elders proclaim the Word of God. I will seek for Him in prayer. I will seek for Him. I will listen and see and and visualize in the supper. And I'll teach myself little by little to spend more time in Scripture. I would consider it a victory if some of you who are at zero would be tomorrow morning at five minutes in the Word and five minutes in prayer. Looking for Him. If you looked for Him in no way today, five minutes tomorrow is a great thing. And then go from there. And I can assure you, if you catch the glimpse of His beauty, then you will start tracking Him. And you know what's so amazing? Tracking Him out, it doesn't stop when you get to heaven. See, people think that that heaven is static. I never thought it was. And then I read Edwards, so I guess maybe I'm right. It's not static. It's dynamic. You say, when I get there, will you be perfect? Will I be perfect? Well, that depends on what you mean. You will be non possipicari. You will not be able to sin. You will be transformed. But the race has just begun. You will spend an eternity growing and growing and growing in the knowledge of Him because His glory, His beauty is infinite. Throughout all of eternity, you'll be tracking it down and tracking it down and you'll say, but what happens when we get to the end? There is no end. After your a thousand eternities in heaven, you'll not have reached the foothills of the Everest that is Christ and His beauty. Constantly growing. Constantly increasing in knowledge. Constantly increasing in capacity to enjoy Him and to love Him. Having said that, I was asked to speak a bit about heart cry. (laughs) And 
After I was converted, a few months after I was converted, this book was given to me. An old, he was old then, Brother Pittman gave me this book, The Autobiography of George Mueller. And Mueller's desire was to prove that the God of all the stories was still alive. I read this book. This book has been with me for almost 40 years. It sits on my desk as a reminder that God answers prayer. He gave me other books, and I consumed them. E.M. Bounds gave me everything E.M. Bounds wrote on prayer. Gave me Ravenhill. Why Revival Terries? Meat for Men. He gave me Hudson Taylor's Spiritual Secret. And I asked myself, is it true? Can I know Him? Can I know Him? And it set me on a quest that answered my question. There's no end to knowing Him. In the Word, but in prayer. That this God will visit you in extraordinary fashions. He will come to you and commune with you and sometimes leave you. His presence, His power, His love sometimes is like soft. And sometimes His love is as violent as the sea that would break you into a million pieces. He's real and you can know Him. And if what I'm saying is troubling to you, realize that even our Puritan fathers, many, said the same thing. The Reformers, others. He can be known. And He answers prayer. And so as a foolish young man, I determined that I would never make my needs known. Never. In the first couple of years, although he answered prayers and provided for me, three times I failed. And every time I was severely rebuked by him for letting someone know that I had a need. And then... As I started Heart Cry, I determined that here's one of our policies. Every need of this ministry will be obtained through prayer. We may share our missionary vision with others and even make known to them the specific, the specific task that the Lord has done. But we may not raise support. We may not prod or manipulate our brothers and sisters in Christ. If this ministry is of the Lord, then he will be our patron 
If he is with us, he will direct his people to give and we will prosper. If he is not with us, we will not and should not succeed. So when someone comes to heart cry, the first thing that they are told that the fastest thing that will get you fired is to tell someone we have a need. There is nothing unbiblical at all. And George Mueller said this also with a minister or a church or a ministry sharing its needs. There's nothing unbiblical. But the burden laid upon my heart from the beginning is that I would never tell a need. And over the last years, 30 years, my faith has failed so many times. Anxiety, worry, fear, sleepless nights, And all of those things for no reason. Because not one time in all these years has God failed. I I don't do this, but I want to share. This was from when Heart Christ started many, many years ago. And it's part of my journal that, that I'll just share. Mueller shared from his journal at times. I'll share from mine. This was when we only had a few missionaries. We began in Peru. After four or five years of God testing and answering specific prayers, I felt like I could launch out. This is just some things from the journal a long time ago. Since Heart Cry began to support national missionaries, we have lived by faith alone. In this time, the mission has grown from one to 87 missionaries in 15 countries on four continents. I have two fellow workers working with me now, Darren and John. These last months have been the leanest of our ministry. Since June, we lived Every day from hand to mouth, several times, Darren, John, and I have not received our salaries. In spite of such hardship, all the men and women in the field have received their support without exception. And in the United States, we have never lacked food or sufficient funds to pay our bills. I now sit here in my office. It's 9 a.m., and I begin to write the account of our struggles and the faithfulness of God. It is mid-month and none of our workers have been paid. Darren, John, and I have passed another week without receiving our salaries. $700 came in this weekend. I also received $150 for preaching at a conference in Lexington. I will preach in a mission of Mexican immigrants tomorrow afternoon. They usually give me $50. I am encouraged this morning by several promises from 2 Kings 7, 1, and 2, and 15, 20. November 21... On Wednesday the 19th, $3,317 was deposited after paying certain bills that were due. We remain with 2638 On Thursday, we received 1247 Today, 350 came in the mail. 1300 came through an anonymous donor who left the money in my truck. And $100 was given by one of our workers. This leaves us with a total of $5,635. We will not pay the U.S. staff again this week since not a single missionary on the field is yet to be paid for this month. Never has there been such a lack in the mission. November 24th, when I came to the office this morning, Darren informed me that there were certain expenses totaling $1,994.75 that were paid last week, but had not been recorded. Therefore, we begin the day 
with 3,600 instead of 5,600. This was a great discouragement, but we have regained our composure and looked to God once more. This is a Gideon's call. The army was too large. All human possibility had to be destroyed so that the victory would be ascribed to God alone. In the same way God has taken away from us even the little strength we thought we had, we have nothing to hope in now but Him. We have seven days before the end of the month and not a single missionary has been paid. Mission giving usually goes down in December because of the Christian holidays. We have no reason to hope at all in the flesh. God alone can save us. On Saturday, the 22nd, $524 came through the mail. I also found a check for $50 in my Spanish Bible that came from preaching three weeks ago. Self-pity, resentment, and grumbling are all crouching at the door, and their desire is to have us. I pray that God might give us all grace to overcome. I am looking forward to deliverance. We will call a prayer meeting in a few minutes. We drew great strength from our morning prayers, but gathered together at lunch for the same. By His good spirit, we were encouraged to trust the Lord. I felt peace that this would not be our end, but that God would be our helper in the final hour. Our greatest desire is for God's name to be great, for Him to make a name for Himself through our total inability. At 4.15, went to the mailbox and was excited to find it full of envelopes. I soon discovered that only one was from HeartCry. It was a donor whom I did not recognize. I opened up the envelope, the donation expecting a donation of $25 or $30, and to my surprise, $3,000 came in. I let out an audible shout and went back to the men to inform them. The first thing tomorrow morning, we will set about paying the missionaries from Peru. It matters little to us that we still lack funds to pay the missionaries in the other 14 countries. God helped us today and has given us hope to trust in Him. I look forward to tomorrow. Its trials will be opportunities to hope in God. November 25th, we deposited $6,857 in our account today, which gave us a total of $7,497. We wired support to the missionaries in Peru, paid our phone bills, and have a remainder of $180. Even though we do not have the necessary funds to finish the month, we saw the need to take on three more missionaries in Peru and help some of our veteran missionaries with their very special needs. Much time has passed since we took on new missionaries, but... In our greatest hour of need, God leads us to believe Him for more missionaries. God always seems to ask more from us when we have less to give so that His great supply and loving kindness might be revealed. Twice today we met for prayer. We are waiting for mail, which usually arrives at 3.30. At the moment we have $180 and six days remaining to provide the support for all our missionaries in 14 countries. I just received mail from the mailbox. There was not one letter for heart cry. We must continue to wait for God's deliverance. We will pray when Darren returns from sending the money to Peru. I have nothing now but his presence. And it is enough. And we go on through here. I could keep reading. I I just feel kind of uncomfortable. Now... I need to trust God for anywhere between 800000 and $1.2 million a month. And God has never once failed. I can recall the time when I got in my truck and I said, tomorrow's the day. Tomorrow, if you do not give me $30,000, it will be the first time in all of heart cry that we were not able to pay our missionaries. Next day, I went, and there was one envelope in the mailbox. 
It was $30,000. Ten years ago, we got to December 31st, and we had a $150,000 deficit. We had spent up all our savings, everything. We met for prayer. My friend came in at 9 o'clock in the morning, and he was teary-eyed. It was the last fiscal day, the day of the fiscal year. Came in teary-eyed, and he said, someone just gave us $60,000. And we rejoiced, and I prayed, went back to work. He came in at lunch, he was teary-eyed, and I said, what's going on? He said, someone gave us $60,000. And I said, that's wonderful. Let's pray again about it. He goes, no, somebody else gave us $60,000. And then by the end of the evening, more than $325,000 had come in. Over and over and over and over and over and over and over again. And so now we have 310 missionary families everywhere from Peru to Canada, uh, throughout Africa, uh, remote areas of Asia, throughout Europe where it is terribly expensive but terribly needy, and in Paris and, and Sweden and Finland and Norway and all throughout Scotland. And now we've targeted the 1040 window. And by 2035, we, our pray, praying goal is to have two strong missionary uh, church works in every one of those countries, along with a total of 600 missionaries. People look at heart cry and they, they say, well, the purpose is to reach the nations. And it is to reach the nations. But my greatest purpose for starting Heart Cry was to demonstrate to God's people that He answers prayer. And He doesn't answer prayer of mighty men. He doesn't. A lady came up to me earlier today and said, Brother Paul, how do you deal with anxiety? And I said, it's one of my greatest problems. Fighting fear and anxiety. You see, it's not... What I want you to see is that God... You know, I get so angry sometimes with people. You know, God has decreed all things, but God has decreed nothing. I mean, I don't understand. God has determined in His Scriptures. He has decreed great things and He has determined that He will win the nations for His Son. That's what He has determined. And His eyes go to and fro throughout the land looking for someone whose heart belongs to Him. That He might do great things through them. And when I say someone whose heart belongs to Him, automatically you're thinking again about, oh yes, some great person with great discipline and great passion. No, if you look in the context, it's indicating a person who recognizes they can do nothing by themselves, but they can do all things in Him. I would... I feel like I can't even say this without asking for your permission. I would that God, do you want God to use you? I mean, use you. You say, yes, you don't know what you're asking for. Because to use you, He has to break you and make you His own. 
He has to make you destitute of, of power, of self-power. If you're willing, if you desire that, ask him for it. But it's a dangerous thing. Now, if you want to be famous, that's easy. You can get there quick. All you have to do is do a lot of Internet stuff. Go to conferences. But if you want to be used, it's costly. My first pastor was an amazing man. It was an independent Baptist church in Austin. When I told him I was called into the ministry, he looked at me and he said this. He was a big man and towered over me. He just said this. He goes, boy, can you be alone? And I thought that what he meant is if I preached the truth, no one would like me and I would be alone. And that does happen. But that's not what he meant. While all the other guys are running around in bachelor packs and going to Bible conferences and scanning their mobile devices, can you be alone with God? Can you be alone with God? Many of you pastors, many of you are goodly men. You're good men. You're Israelites in whom there is no guile. I have no war with you. But I must assume you're like me. I must assume that. I must assume you're tired. I must assume your head is worn. I must assume that it's easy to fall into a routine. I must assume that it's so easy to become discouraged and to lose hope. I would beg you, and if your congregation was here, I would beg them to let you alone for a while. Just to study Christ. Just to study the Word. Just to be alone with God. Sometimes I'm asked to go to churches that are looking for a pastor and they'll go, you know, Brother Paul, could you tell us what we should do? And I said, well, I can give you some suggestions, but I need a whiteboard. And they'll go, a whiteboard? Yeah, a whiteboard. I'm old-fashioned. I don't know how to work all the other things. And I look at the congregation and I go, okay. You want a pastor? Good. Um, This is the man that's going to be preaching to your children and will influence whether or not they're converted. How many hours a day do you want him studying the Word? Half hour? Or 20 minutes? Because that's the average, I think. This man's going to be preaching to your children. Congregation? How much time do you want him in the Word? How much time? Tell me. And they said, well, we never thought about that. I said, that's the problem. How much time do you want him in the Word? Half hour? No. An hour? No. Sometimes I can get them to three to four hours. I said, okay, now, how much time do you want him interceding? Remember, the souls of your children are at stake here. How much time do you want this man interceding for you? 20 minutes? 30 minutes? An hour? How much time do you want him in prayer? I can usually get an hour or so out. 
Do you see what I'm doing? There, look, how many men are in this world? How many? How many men have devoted themselves to reading the Word of God, living the Word of God, praying the Word of God, and preaching the Word of God? How many men are devoted to God? Do you know why? You know, if I could change anything in the American church, in the, in the biblical churches, you know what I would change? I would so exalt the ministry of deacon. As a matter of fact, I would have a full-time deacon on staff paid full. Why? Because most ministers are doing what deacons are supposed to do. Because a minister of Christ is a man of the word and a man of prayer. That's what he does. And you say, well, he's just supposed to preach? Yes. And you go, well, how could, okay, let's look at it. Gets in a pulpit, he preaches. He does counseling. What is that? Expository preaching to a single person. He goes into a deacon's meeting. You do not want most ministers doing accounting. So why is he there? He's there with biblical principles that he has studied in order to guide the direction according to the Word of God. All the man is supposed to do is preach and pray and study and live as an example. And most of you are so busy doing other things, you're so tired, you can't even begin to think about doing that. As a matter of fact, if the church gave you the time and you used the time correctly, you'd feel guilty. Look, preachers have no right telling people we need a revival. Preachers need a revival. We need the revival. I need the revival. In the Word of God. There is so much life and power in communion with God that most could even begin to believe. There are times of joy and communion with God that you no longer look at your watch. But when you finally do, you can't believe that much time passed. There are times in the night when He will wake you and call you out of bed. And then he puts you back in bed. He's so real. That's what we need. Seek after him. And everything else will fall in place. And believe him. Believe him. When I came back from Peru the first time, they, I spoke at this church and they put up some microphones. And they said uh, people could come and ask questions. And I'll never forget this little red-headed boy. He came up to the microphone and he goes, Brother Paul. And I said, yes. He goes, when you win everyone to Christ in Peru, then what are you going to do? <laughs> and everybody laughed except me and the little boy. I said, well, son, when we win everybody in Peru, I guess we'll just have to go somewhere else. I am not going to put a limit on what God wants to give His Son. 
I am not going to put a limit on the people that God wants to give His Son. When I read the final book, I see people from every tribe, every nation, every tongue. And I know from my study of the world, even the other day, scouring over maps again, that has not been accomplished. Brothers, well, now you're seeing why I got my worst grade in seminary and preaching. I am just not a good preacher. Brothers, look at me. My last final thing is going to be completely the opposite of what we've been doing here. I want you to see something. There is nothing that cannot be accomplished if we will believe Him. If we will shun the arm of the flesh, if we will put away all the gimmicks and gizmos, the manipulation and everything else, and if it's just us and God and His Word, there's nothing that can't be done There is nothing. There are nations to be one. When my boys were little, they asked me this question. They go, Dad, what do you do? And I go, what do you mean? They go, well, you go away, you come back, you look all beat up. (laughs) What do you do? And I thought, you know, I'm going to teach them something. And I said, I can't tell you. And they said, why? said, you wouldn't believe me. That, of course, you know, little boys, that now, they're really interested. They followed me around the house. Dad, what do you do? All right, I'll tell you what I do, but you have to promise to believe me. Okay. I took them up the room. They were sitting on one, bunk, one bed. I was sitting on the other. Do you want to know what I do? They said, Yes. I fight dragons. And they went, no. (laughs) I said, yes. That's what I do. I don't care about how clean I throw the punch. I just want to make sure that whatever I punch goes down. We fight dragons. We need men. We need men who will stop looking at silly things. We need men who realize there is a world out there that needs the gospel. Do you not see that? And what's so marvelous is our captain goes forth to conquer, conquering. And we can go with him. In Peru, we have a saying, tu vives porque el aire es gratis. The only reason you're alive is because air is free. I mean, what do you do with your life? We have nations to win for Him. We have nations to take back for Him. Yeah, I'm not going to be in your club if all you're going to do is circle the wagons and wait for the rapture. We were never called to do with it. If I'm going out, I'm going out fighting. Young men, look at me. There is so much. God can take you to win a nation. Do you not see that? If you'll grab a hold of the horns of the altar, if you'll become his man, not in a pulpit, but privately. There's nothing that can't be done. Church, there's nothing that cannot be accomplished. Iran can be won. Saudi Arabia can hear the gospel. The Korwai people in Papua, Indonesia, they can come to understand. 
There's no place. We need to fight, and we need to fight, and we need to live, and we need to die, and we need to preach, and we need to pray until the banner of Jesus Christ flies over every inch of this planet. And it can be done. It can be done. I think that's the saddest thing. There is no limitation in Scripture with regard to the power of the gospel. There is no limitation with regard to the work of missions or evangelism except one that we might impose. Let's pray. Father, I I know you hear me. I know you hear me. Please. Do something wonderful for your son. Enlarge his gift. Oh, dear God, bless your people. Give them a greater vision of their own weakness and a greater vision of your strength, but not merely your strength, your willingness to manifest your strength. Oh, God, please, please, God, I beg you. You know I beg you. You know my voice. You know who I am. Please, please, God. Please. God, in this university, oh, God, Raise up young men and women, please, to go forth and preach the gospel, to go forth and live the gospel. God, so many words, so little power. Lord, I am not talking to be heard. Please let me know in eternity that because we met here and because we preached and because we prayed that something in eternity was impacted. God, this school, that it would know Scripture and hold to Scripture as firmly as ever, that students would come to see that this life is a vapor. And apart from serving you, it's, it's stupid and dull and gross. Oh God, revive these students. Strengthen them for the days to come. Send them out as missionaries. Make the ministers in this school a flame of fire. 
Make this chapel in this school hot. Biblical, spirit-filled. God, do a work here. And do a work through sermon audio. And the prayers of all the people that are united in that prayer concert. Oh God, look down on our feeble praying and send it back to earth, Lord, with the force of thunder and lightning and earthquakes. Oh God, 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 please. For your son, for your son, for your son, everything for him. And in his name, amen. I just wanted to um, say thank you for being here, for coming. Being on the campus of Bob Jones University is significant. Some of you might not really understand that. I see it as significant, miraculous. We're praying for the students here a lot. Uh, Thank you for coming here, showing your support. Let's have a good day tomorrow. I know that some of you are hindered in coming here. You know, the Bible talks about Satan hindering the Apostle Paul. I think that the Lord desires to work through us more than we understand. And just keep praying that we will see the break of day. It's what we've been praying for. But um, God bless you. Have a good evening. And we will see you in the morning. Thank you.